Please stand for the scripture reading. Our scripture today is Psalm 126, 1 through 6. It's on page 298 of the Blue Bibles in the seat pockets in front of you. If you do not have a Bible, feel free to take one home so you may have a copy of God's Word. Psalm 126, a song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore the fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Thus says God's word. Thanks, Gloria. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have allowed us to be a part of the body of Christ, that you have allowed us to gather this morning to worship together, to enjoy the encouragement and the fellowship of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and yes, Lord, to hear your word, God, to be transformed by its preaching and to, God, grow in grace and to, uh, God, even be corrected by it, Lord, we just thank you for the greatness of your word, the the magnitude that God has chosen to speak to to people like us and make make his word so clear to us. And so we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that we would be attentive. I pray that our ears would hear supernaturally what you have to say to us. God, I pray for myself, my stammering tongue, God, my, my wavering thoughts, Lord, that they would be all brought uh, to to uh, discipline, God, to your word, that they would, God, speak clearly and accurately the word, and that um, I would be a pleasing vessel to you in the communication of what you have written for our benefit. I thank you for all of this, in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So glad to see so many of you here today. Um, I want to just welcome the extended Shaparo family. Great to have you guys. We had such a Precious time this uh, week with them as they were grieving and just heard so many testimonies of God's goodness. And so thank you so much for being here. Um, I want to also welcome Northridge Life's newest and shortest member. Gideon is here today if you didn't get to see him. Uh, And so we're so glad that Natalie is just doing so great and and that Gideon was here with us uh, today in the service. And um, I think he's back having a very early lunch right now. So uh, uh, but we're glad to have him. Glad to have Vernon with us today. Vernon spent a little time in the hospital uh, last week, and and uh, he is he is in 12 days. Vernon is going to be 97 years old, and so he is rocking 97. And so glad to have him with us today. Um, and uh, so we have our youngest member and our and our, our most seasoned member here today, and uh, glad to have them both. So. Um, we're still doing this uh, series on the Psalms of Ascent. We're actually, after today, we'll be just about halfway done, and um, I have really enjoyed it. I may be the only one in the building, but I've really enjoyed digging into these 15 Psalms uh, in the, uh, the, that are designated Song of Ascent. And last week, we saw uh, in Psalm 125 that the people of God cannot 
be moved. The Bible says that they are like Mount Zion that can't be moved. And um, we saw in that passage that God always faithfully defends his people. And today, as odd as it seems, what we're going to notice from God's word in Psalm 126 is that this immovability of God's people is not enough. And what, what do I mean by that? That sounds terrible to say. But what we're seeing in Psalms 126 as we progress on this journey with the, with the people of God is that we're going to see that as an outgrowth of this steadfastness that were promised in the previous psalm, that now we're promised that this life in Christ has a payoff, a promised payoff of joy and fruitfulness. Christ, I want to just say this clearly up front, and I hope you believe it, and I hope your life exemplifies what I'm about to say. But Christ himself is misrepresented by his church when his followers live with long, depressed faces, with no outward show of joy for all that they've been rescued from. What I'm trying to say is of all people on the face of the planet right now, the redeemed of the Lord ought to be the most joyful. Though we have many trials, there's no doubt about that, and even Paul said that we enter the kingdom through many tribulations, by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we should be joyfully productive. And we should have lives that are filled with rejoicing. Jesus himself said, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you. How many of you think that Jesus' joy is pretty great? How many of you think for everything that we could possibly face, Jesus' joy has to be pretty sufficient? Would you agree with that? He says, I've spoken these things that my joy may be in you, and it gets better, and that your joy may be full. Man, what a promise. That's like just an explosive device in God's word that just explodes with joy. Hey, Gideon, good to have you in here. You missed, you missed your welcome, so glad you're here. Is he awake? Is he, is he listening? Okay, well, he's like half of you, just sound asleep. And <laughs> Just kidding, just kidding. Jesus in, intends that our lives be filled to capacity with joy. Joy that marks our life as distinct. What I mean by that is when people see the life of the followers of Christ, they should say, by the simple fact of joy, they should say something's different. Something is, is distinct. And, and because that joy should highlight his work for all around us to see. Now, in this joy that I'm describing, Christ enables us to bring forth lasting fruit. If, just five verses later in that passage, he says, you did not choose me. Man, what a great news that is. Because I want to let you in on a little secret. I would not have chosen Christ. But he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. What is he saying there? That your fruit should last, that it should remain, that it isn't going anywhere. And the, this lasting fruit is, is the great reason for our joy. A Christian life is not a meaningless life. A Christian life is a life that produces joy because it produces a lot of other things. What does it produce? Well, bearing lasting fruit isn't 
about behaving better. Simply, it's simply stated. It's not about just being a better person, a better citizen. I've always said you do not need the gospel. You do not need the church to make you a better citizen. The Lions Club can do that. But we need something that makes us more than just better people. But the bearing lasting fruit isn't about being more religious. Or looking more churchy. It's, it, it's, it's about something so much deeper. Bearing lasting fruit is about becoming like Christ. Becoming more like Christ. It means that your desires at a heart level radically change. Not just that your actions change, but your desires change. The Pharisees were people that, that did all kinds of things on the outside, hoping that it would reflect some difference in the inside. But Jesus said to them, you're like people who just wash the outside of the cup while the inside of the cup is filled with rottenness. But when Christ begins to change you, it happens from the inside out, not the outside in. Something that happens in your heart by the Spirit. This is why Paul says so famously in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against Such things as these, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. See, if Psalm 125 last week was about the permanence of God's people, Psalm 126 is about their positive transformation in the right direction. They're in a new place. The saints are in a new place and they're experiencing a new level of grace. And even though we've talked about this over and over and over, even though we know these songs were originally written for pilgrims on the way to Jerusalem for the Jewish festivals, uh, and we know that much about these, these songs, we don't know for sure when the songbook was finally compiled, when it was completed, and we know that it took generations. For example, some of these songs are attributed to David, some, one of them, at least, is attributed to Solomon later, and, and they might have even been uh, you know, written later. And many have speculated about Psalm 126 in particular, that it was written after the people, the Jewish people, returned from their 70-year uh, exile in Babylon. Um, and there are indications that this dating is, in fact, probably likely from the text itself. Um, uh, in verses 1 and 4, for example, the ESV says that the Lord restored their fortunes. Now that's really significant because the King James Version uses this term for restored their fortunes. It says that the Lord turned again their captivity. And for the same thought, restored their fortunes is the same thought as turned again their captivity. And so is that a reference to the Babylonian captivity? Also interestingly in the ESV, which is what we use around here, the prophets from Isaiah to Malachi always use restoring their fortunes is always the language that they use when God speaks, speaks of bringing the people back from captivity in uh, Babylon when the exile is over. And then furthermore, verses 4 through 6 of our text today seem to allude to some agricultural hardships that are the result of a drought. Well, if you go to the, the post-exile book of Haggai, verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, it's, 
speaks of this drought that this post-exile community experiences. And so as we've done through this series, I said all that for this reason, as we've done through this series, we're going to appreciate what the, uh, the, the natural or what the, uh, the ancient Jews experienced naturally in their time and in their environment. But we, we're going to view it as a shadow of the reality and the substance that we now experience supernaturally through Christ as partakers of the new covenant. So all of this talk of, of returning from exile, all this talk of drought has significance for us in the new covenant. So let's look at the verse. Psalm 126, verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. I really like that. The Jews returning from exile could not imagine that such a thing as what was happening could possibly take place. There's a reason for that. Conquering kings like those in Babylon, like the the Medes and the Persians, they did not routinely restore people back to the land from which they were taken. As a matter of fact, they would usually assimilate them into the kingdom where they took them to. They would force them to and persuade them to adopt the culture where they went. That's what happened with the northern kingdom and Assyria. They, they, They assimilate them. They don't return them. And so the fact that they were released proves God's intervening hand was at work in their lives, and it wasn't just the will of some earthly benevolent king. And because of this, these Jews were in total disbelief that they were walking back home. They were like those who dream, he says. Have you ever had a blessing so great that it seemed like you were in a dream-induced fantasy, that things had, had just turned around so much in your life that you turn to your spouse, you turn to your neighbor, you turn to your friend and say, pinch me! I don't even believe this is real, that this is happening, that my fortunes have turned so dramatically. Think about it. They're back from Babylon to get to rebuild ruined homes and replant fields and rebuild the walls of the city and rebuild that temple that once stood up top Mount Zion. And they could hardly believe that in just a matter of a few months, how everything had changed. They were prisoners. They were exiles in Babylon. Now they're home. It's an incredible change. It had happened so suddenly. They were back home in a place, think about it, it had been 70 years. They're back home in a place that some of them had never ever seen, they'd only heard about. And others, that more elderly among them, thought that they would never see this place again. And all that they had left behind, all that they were convinced they would never see, they would take up again. Fortunes that they thought were lost forever were restored to their rightful owners by God. Now, why does this matter to us? Because, see, many of us were in captivity to sin for so long that we've actually forgotten what belongs to us as God's image bearers. There's things in our life that we call natural and we call normal that are the direct diametrical opposite of what God intended for his creation. See, sin has made life, all of life around us, in every aspect, it's made life abnormal. But Jesus' saving work alone restores our 
fortune. And when you realize that, when you realize what the work on the cross has done, you're like those who dream. You're like, this can't be real. The, the, the very laws of life and, and normalcy have been flipped on their head. What would restored fortunes look like for us? What would they look like for you? Well, it's only at the cross where we discover what it really means to be human. What it means as God intended to know God in intimate relationship. What it means to be unpolluted and to be clothed in perfect righteousness. What it means to experience life by the Spirit and not just to experience life imprisoned to our own fleshly desires. The cross is where we are freed from the most unnatural thing in all creation, which is death. Death isn't normal. Death is abnormal. It was injected into our experience because of sin. But at the cross, something amazing happens. The power of death is turned around. And death becomes our entrance into life. It's like a dream. How could this be possible? And living in fallen bodies in a fallen creation, this kind of life absolutely seems like a dream. But but this is just like the Jews returning to the Holy Land and thinking this can't be real. It is real. And it's a royal deed. It's a royal grant from God Himself, the, the King of the land, to all who would put their trust in Him by faith. And how would anyone, how would anyone who experiences such a restoration of what they were convinced was lost. How would they respond to such a thing? Well, verse 2 tells us, Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. People who are truly saved, this is what I was saying at the beginning, people who are truly saved will always have joy as a byproduct of that salvation. A Christian life, Devoid of joy has to be carefully examined and considered. Is it really a Christian life? Can it be genuine by any standard of Scripture? How can the recipient of so great a salvation not be joyful? Now, raise your hand if you've had bad days. Raise your hand. Raise your hand if... There's a little bit of pressure on you when I say that the Christian life is undoubtedly one of joy. It's a little nervous thing to think because you might think of this last week or the month before, terrible year of COVID, and you think, man, I did not have a lot of joy. Well, everybody in this room who's truly a believer in Jesus, take a deep breath. Seriously, take it. Okay. Because I'm not suggesting, even for a nanosecond, that all of us are called to some weird life where we're always laughing our heads off. I'm not suggesting for a minute that we won't ever have any somber moments of grief or sorrow or seriousness or sober awe. I have had and have been with people this last week who've had plenty of those. I'm also not suggesting that a genuine Christian life of Christian joy is one of vain giddiness where what results in us just singing K-sera-sera all the time and having this Pollyanna attitude. 
Christian joy, true Christian joy, is quite a different thing. And the kind of joy I want to describe to you will mark a genuine Christian life. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12, is is the seminal verse about joy. It says that we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, watch this, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, what is that verse telling us? It was saying that Jesus looked directly through the cross, not around it, and he looked to joy on the other side of it. He looked to that. He endured a cross that was marred, that was ugly by shame, and he was not laughing as he hung there. See, biblical joy is distinct, sharply distinct from mere happiness. It's holy and it's pure and it's rooted in the very character of God. Biblical, gospel-centered joy rises above circumstances and it looks beyond our present to the promises of future salvation. Godly joy is easily commingled even with our tears because it's deeply anchored in the promises of God. And it rarely, rarely, if ever, makes sense to those who are worldly. They cannot conceive of someone who weeps claiming to have joy. But if you've ever experienced what I'm talking about, if you've ever experienced it, you know exactly the reality of what I'm saying. And without Christ, if you're here without Christ, you have never experienced what I'm talking about. And you never will until you put your trust in Christ. Yet while all I've said about joy and all I've said about joy in our suffering is true, I want, this is what I want you to see. Psalm 126 is actually describing something even beyond that. It's not talking about joy that we just, where we're just holding on and, and the Holy Spirit's doing something inside of us. See, because that same joy that sustains you in trial will literally explode out of you when your deliverance comes. Mouths become filled with laughter. The earth shakes with your shouts of joy. Songs burst forth from you easily. And my heart longs For our worship, not just our corporate worship. Oh yes, that's included. But I mean your individual worship, our worship as a church. My heart longs for our worship to be marked by more than just joy of those who are enduring or those who are trusting patiently for God to reveal His power. I want us to have the shouts of joy of those who have been rescued, those who have been delivered. I desperately long for our gatherings to be filled with joyful shouts, joyful songs of those who after long nights of weeping have seen the Lord deliver them from trouble and sorrow, fully restoring lost fortunes. And what happens next is so powerful. I love this. That last half of verse 2. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Now, did you see what happened there? Who are the they? Then they said, among the nations, in this case, in the case of the Jews, it was the heathen 
nations around Jerusalem who are standing there in their field and they're watching a people so long ago exiled marching right back with orders from the king to take possession of the land that had been taken from them. Seven decades earlier, and here they are coming singing loudly, joyfully to return to their homes. What is happening? The loss. The loss. Let that sink in. The loss are glorifying God. Amazed at what they are seeing. Let your light so shine before men, Christ said, so that they will glorify the Father. They see the great deliverance that God has brought about and they cannot help but comment on it loudly. How much do the people around you see the power of God displayed in you? How often do they see it where they see that something is happening, something's different, and they have to comment that the Lord has restored your fortunes? Do they see your patient confidence turned eventually into real deliverance? Your patient joy, listen to me carefully, in the worst of your trouble is the greatest opportunity you will ever have to share the gospel. When God either sustains you or when God delivers you, people will notice. And they're going to ask gospel questions that you will get to answer. Listen how Peter talks about that. First Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. He is writing, Peter is writing to, to, to people who are really suffering, massive persecution, and he says, hey, in your, in your hearts, while you're enduring persecution, honor Christ as, as holy and, and be prepared because people are going to ask and they're going to be looking to you for an answer what this is all about. In your reverence for and trust in the Lord, you will eventually lead inquiring minds to want to know. But remember, no one cares, listen to this carefully, no one cares about the hope of an old, complaining, religious grump. No one cares. I, there are, we don't have church bumper stickers because some of you I don't want advertising our church. I, I would peel them off your car. If your testimony benefits no one but yourself, it's just your little you and Jesus testimony, your testimony is worthless. Actions, patient, joyful endurance, will always speak louder than self-righteous, hyper-judgmental, hypocritical words. Verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Now watch, the, the, the heathen acknowledged God. Now the Lord's people are echoing what the heathen first said. The heathen looked on questioningly, amazed by this, but they were detached from the mercies that the saints were actually enjoying. Yes, we want people to deliver, to, to witness our deliverances and, and to come to faith in Christ. I love Psalm 40, quoted all the time. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Now watch this. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. That's what we want to happen. We want people to see our deliverances and to, and to all of a sudden come in the fear of the Lord and put their trust in God. 
But when God delivers us, this is my point, it isn't always about exploiting some evangelistic opportunity. Sometimes we should just let our joy explode into laughter, singing and shouting just for the sheer pleasure that it brings to Jesus. He loves it when we delight in the effective working of His mighty power on our behalf. Doesn't He? Psalm 126 verse 4 says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. This is interesting because they were they said when the Lord did restore our fortunes, we are like those who dream. And now look what they're doing. Present tense. Lord, restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev. Without a doubt, the returning exiles were glad to be home. But when they arrived... They're coming home. Imagine this. They're singing. They're shouting. They come home and then they start walking down the streets of Jerusalem. What do they see? They see houses in total disrepair. They see fields that had lain fallow literally for generations. Foreign squatters are occupying their city and the temple that they regarded as God's dwelling place is in absolute shambles, stripped of all its beautiful embellishments by Babylon's armies so long ago. It would have been hard to see any hope in the shadows of these realities. But the best of the Jews remembered that God had brought them home and they turned their disappointment into a prayer. And on their way into the city, they sang about how God had restored their fortunes and now they would ask Him to do it again. The Negev Desert South of Jerusalem was scarred with dry stream beds, brown and lifeless. They were a haunt of jackals and tumbleweeds. But when the spring rains fell, flash floods would suddenly fill those dry beds with life-giving water, and they would turn to raging rivers. I will never forget, uh, some of you guys have been out to the Silver Falls uh, little uh, roadside place there in between Crosbyton and and Dickens, and I'll never forget a few years ago, we had had just a ton of rain, and Ginger and I drove out there, and usually there's just a little trickle. They call it a waterfall. It's more like somebody left a faucet on. It's kind of dripping over there. But we, we got video of this. That place was raging. If you'd stepped in there, you would have died. It just would have swept you under, and you would have drowned to death. And that's what this vision, this is what this idea is, that, that this little trickle, this, sometimes this dryness is just all of a sudden flooded with life-giving water, and, and, and the landscape becomes green and dead rivers are flowing again. This is the image that the Jews recalled as they asked God to look on their low estate, now in their present circumstance, and again to restore their fortunes. A rising, rough, rushing river filled with fresh water for irrigation, for drinking, for cleansing. And we who have been saved can look back and thank God for restoring our image-bearing, our image-bearing humanity at the cross and for allowing us to come before Him and giving us victory over the grave. But if we're honest, oftentimes, for a myriad of reasons, our lives are dry. And the walls of our faith are broken down. And indwelling sin is kind of like a squatter in our redeemed heart. But God's effective work originally for our salvation and our justification is God's promise for our sanctification. 
He who began a good work in you, the scriptures tell us, will be faithful to complete it. God's restoring of your fortune is not complete yet. He's got work to do, and he's doing it in you. He will not leave us in the pollution and dryness of our flesh. He will sanctify us and cleanse us. The one who restored our fortunes at the cross will certainly restore our fortunes in the holiness of a godly life. Hebrews 13.20 says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And what would it look like if you believed that? What would it look like if you really believed that God was still doing work in you, still forming the image of Christ in you? Wouldn't it look like putting an end to all your empty vows and promises that I talked about during our prayer time today, that that I'm not going to fail God, I'm going to white-knuckle this thing, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to be better. You would realize if you understood this idea of restoring your fortunes, that doing that is just vain self-righteousness. It's works, it's not grace. But what if instead, after your next stumble, after your next failure, after your next sin, you confessed your sin and you thanked God, thanked God right in the in the shadow of your sin for both the grace that he's made available freely to you now and for the promises in his word that he is going to make you holy and pleasing in his sight. That's what faith looks like. Check out these Bible promises in this passage. Read them again. Psalm 126, verse 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. A poor Jewish farmer returning home goes out to seed his, his, uh, sow his seed in the middle of a drought. Can you imagine the discouragement of that? He doesn't know if this seed is any good. He's traveled a long way with it. He doesn't know if the weather will improve. He doesn't know if the bugs are going to stay away. He doesn't know if fire or frost or any other thing will endanger his crop. He has no idea about any of those things. There's any number of things that could go wrong. Yet faithfully and in faith, he sows in tears, investing everything he has, that little basket of seed, He invests it into the soil instead of just eating it for lunch right now. He goes out trembling and he goes out weeping, but he goes out in faith praying the same prayer, restore our fortunes, O Lord. And because of the providential promises of the Lord, the seed does what it's designed to do. Though he fought through his anxiety praying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. God has been good. And harvest time sees him joyfully binding his sheaves together and storing them in his barns. Now that's a simple illustration, but one with great meaning. Many of you right now, right now in this room, have been tearfully sowing seeds of faith for an unconquered sin, for an unsaved loved one, for the mending of a broken heart. And it is 
your tears that have nourished the soil of your faith. You have sown in great cost. And guess what? God saw it. He was watching. Look again at the promise. Look again. Five and six. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. There is no uncertainty in this passage. Shall reap with shouts of joy. Shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. What a definite promise. Our fortunes are not left to chance. There's no might reap or not maybe come home. He shall. Hebrews 6 says, For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown in His name in serving the saints as you still do, continually sowing, continually sowing. God sees every tear and He hears every prayer. And He has restored your fortunes through the cross, and He is continuing His restorative work in us day by day. So this morning, I'm calling you to continue so joyfully in tears, being confident that you will reap in joy because of God's faithful love for you. Amen. Let's stand. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. There is no greater loss of your fortunes than being dead, than being a corpse, being a zombie. And yet, the Bible says, but God in His great mercy made us alive in Christ. And so why do we come to this table this morning? We come because it is just a sign of our covenant with God that He has made us alive. He has restored our fortunes. Has anybody in this room had their fortunes restored by God? Anybody whose mouths are filled with laughter, whose tongues with shouts of joy because of the restored fortunes that God has brought about this morning? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And so you can come and you can kind of do this kind of thing we do every week and not let it move you, but can I just suggest that you would look at the symbol of Christ's broken body and this this emblem of His poured out blood and you would say, man, when the Lord restored our fortunes, we were like those who dream. And would you just turn it into a prayer and say, God, help me to know the magnitude of what you've done, how you've restored my humanity, how you've freed me from the curse, how you have delivered me even from the jaws of death itself. Just remember and give thanks. If I could have our our helpers come to the table, we're going to ask you to um, uh, just come and and, um, uh, receive the elements and then go back to your 
seat and we will take them together. As soon as they're up here, you're free to, free to come. Before I read um, these familiar words from the scripture, will you just pause, bow your heads, close your eyes, and thank you, and, and just thank the Lord rather to just um, say thank you and, and um, remember just how your fortunes have been restored. Try to throw your mind back to when you were a, a dead man, a dead woman, Lost and without the hope of God in this world, as Paul says. When there was nothing. Nothing but sin and death. In your own words, you just thank him for the fact that he restored your fortune. Some of you are looking at spiritually dilapidated houses and barren fields. And in holding these symbols of your restored fortunes, would you just say, God, would you just restore my fortunes again like streams in the Negev? Would you just let the rushing water of your spirit flow and bring life where death has been? Bring Produce where barrenness has been. Bring faith where unbelief has taken root. Ask him. He knows your heart. He knows the specifics of your situation. Just ask him. Make this message real in your heart this morning. Maybe you haven't had a tongue filled with laughter, no shouts of joy for a long time. I think you have a lot of courage and just ask God to restore your laugh. To restore, even, even David prayed that after his great sin. He said, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Ask him to just pour out joy on your life. It'll only come through repentance an acknowledgement of the Lord's lordship, but just ask him. He's more interested in you being joyful than you being joyful. Ask him. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Jesus, we thank you. You have restored our fortunes. We are restored to relationship with Jesus, with the Father through Jesus. We're restored to our inheritance. We are restored to righteousness 
and intimate fellowship with you. We thank you for this, all made possible by the breaking of your body and the pouring out of your blood. If you would, just place your hands in a receiving position. I want to read this benediction over you before you leave. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed.